good morning. Welcome back from Guatemala, Dr. Herb. Good to have you. Give him a hand. Good to see you, buddy. That's awesome. I was just thinking this morning as I, and I was sitting there and I was watching Pam sort of lead us into worship and then and Kelsey was up there speaking. Just, I'm just reminded of the godly ladies we have here, you know, that just trust and follow after the Lord. And, and it's not like it's just them. It's everyone. There's so many people doing things behind the scenes even now. And I'm just thankful for you. And then, it, then I got thinking about the guys and there's some guys missing today because they are out, they've been out in this lovely summer heat all weekend with some uh, very, from young men who are uh, looking to become like boys to men, sort of the choices bit. And so we're really just thankful that they gave of their weekend and some of their wives are here. We're just like, thank you for giving up. Don't, don't get excited about it or anything, but thank you for giving them up for a weekend to serve the kids in our community. So it's just, just neat to see that people are active and engaged and doing things. So I'm so thankful for that. If you have your Bibles, please, please turn to James chapter 4. We're in our series, Faith Works. Faith Works. And uh, last week, Dr. Rob took us through uh, really just another way to go through James 3, and I so respected it. And, and what, what my head took from it, what the main thing was for me, is I can tend to take the negative of something and focus on it instead of turning it around to the positive. So the positive really was how can we use our tongue as a sense of encouragement, a way to uplift one another, a way to be a blessing, whether it's we're talking with each other or about each other outside of oneself, that we use our tongues to edify, whether it's in our marriages and our friendships that our tongues should edify. So you know, we pulled over here to uh, chapter four, and we're gonna go through it verse by verse. And, and what I thought about was this. When we bought a car, we had a 100,000-mile warranty on it. It's like a 10-year, 100,000-mile warranty, all right? And that's pretty good, especially since we work right here. It's like I commute to work, I, I walk, I could walk if I had to both places, so we don't, you know, so it's like 10 years is sort of covered. But there's a hitch. I have to, within every uh, mileage hack and time hack, take my car in for service or preventive maintenance, right? So I got to take it in. And I've got to take it in. And, and actually, at this place, at the Kia place, I have to get it serviced by a Kia dealer. And it has to have a Kia filter put on it. And so it's all recorded in the system. So I, if I took the car and just ran it for nine years, didn't change the oil, and the engine locked up, and I go to Kia and I knock on the door, and I go, hey, I got this car from you. I got this awesome insurance. And I show them my preventive, preventive maintenance record. My service record, what do you think they're going to do for me? Nothing, right? They're going to sell, try to sell me another car because I am one of those people that just sort of does that thing and doesn't do preventive, preventative maintenance. And that actually can be said both ways. I Googled it, preventive or preventative. Somehow I get stuck on those words. So, uh, but we as Christians are called to do the same thing. 
And so where I looked at chapter 4, the first 12 verses, I could see a real hard-heading thing. But I, I was thankful to sort of digest last week that I'm like, you know what? You all have it together so well. And, are, you know, are just there are no drama in this room. And I just figured that we do a little preventative maintenance together. All right? So we're going to suppose that what if a problem happens in our future? How are we going to respond to it, right? Because we don't have any right now, right? We're just, just sort of go with me. Now, you're like, you're crazy, Eric. But my point is this. If we take God's guidebook, if you will, that we say we're disciples and we're set to follow this, and we don't do preventative maintenance, and we come, I think, sometimes knocking to God, and we want him to do something for us, and we haven't been doing the basics of what he said. I'm not talking about crazy stuff. I'm like, just the basics. I just think there's a point where it's like you have made your own bed lie in it. But there's also grace to be found there. So please don't see that as a dead-end place, but grace is found. So go ahead and open to um, chapter 4, verse 1, and the title of the sermon is called War and Peace. Because frankly, we are either in a wartime environment with issues going on around us, or we're at peacetime. If you're at wartime right now, sometimes you just need to get rest and find grace. But if you're in peacetime, I think the human inclination is just to get by and skate through. It's like we're okay right now. We don't have to do anything. Just drive that key until it dies, right? Just drive it, drive it, drive it. And we, we, we just days turn into months, and we drive, and we drive, and we drive. And our bodies get fatigued, and we drive, and we drive, and drive. And all these things happen, and then something happens. So James here is continuing the message of the difference of, like, in chapter 2 about divisions, in chapter 3 about the tongue. He's continuing on talking primarily to the church. So here are these words. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? If you haven't focused on this verse in a while, I want you to just reread it with me. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Normally, I would think it's another person. Right? It's another person. It's what they did or they didn't do that causes strife. It's this and it's that. But the Bible here, it says, James speaks to us, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Your passions are at war. The inside of you is at war. There's not peace inside. And, and Rob alluded to it last week, and it's my favorite premarital thing is that if I, and we're going to do it again later, but it's like if I had a glass here with water in it, and if you come and tip it over and you get wet, it's, uh, and you know, you get wet from it, who's at fault? And it's sort of like really the question is, if you tip my cup as a person, and you get wrath from me, and you get anger, our tendency is to blame the other person, is it not? Let's just say it's about the other person we're talking about, right? We just tend to blame someone else for it. But the Bible says it's because what's in you, that when it gets hit, out of, out of the same well should not flow uh, clean water and, bit or, and bitter water as well. So here he's saying that the passions are at war within us. Verbal argument, private violence, or national conflict 
The cause of them all can be traced back to the wrongful lust to want more than we have, to be envious of and covet what others have, whether it be their position or their possession. Luke 8, 14 speaks about it like this. and talking about the seed and the sower. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. That verse scares me. I'm reminded of Demas in the Old Testament. Demas, I mean, New Testament, we hear about Demas. He was one of the disciples' friends. It says, but for the love of the world, he left the fold. He went away. And so the seed is talking about being planted, and it gets choked away by the weeds. But ultimately, again, where does the problem reside? The Bible says clearly within our hearts. 2 Peter 2.13 says, Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. You ever been tension around your spouse? Don't answer that. You know, you ever had tension with people at work? You ever had tensions around there? And then sometimes it's just like everyone's acting okay, but there's deception going on because the real issue is not being hit on. Again, James talks about the problem is me. The problem is me. And speaking for you, the problem is you in our hearts. Now, this doesn't mean that there's not external factors. Please don't read into that too much. Yes, there's some outside things that happen, but ultimately, those things that war in us, war in peace, is really a war between following the spiritual world and the fleshly world. Verse two, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. That's sort of funny. It's not, but it is. It's just talking about where this stuff leads. You you desire and you do not have and you murder. It's like, what is going on? You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and you quarrel and you think you're going to get what you want by beating the door down and just by yelling and screaming. And it says, you do not have because you do not ask. Okay, I've heard that thing before. You have not because you ask not. Huh. Matthew 5, 19 says, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness and slander. We're going to be talking about the Sermon on the Mount in the fall. Jesus says, I mean, the Old Testament says don't murder, right? That seems like an easy one. You know, don't have, commit adultery, uh, I'm relatively easy, and, and don't do this, and don't do this. Like, okay, check. The Pharisees were like, check, check, check. Jesus came and said, out of your inside comes murder. When you don't have or you're angry and you're bitter, you've got murderous thoughts. And so this is where that phrase comes in. You do not have, you do not ask, you desire and you do not have, so you murder. And you become adulterous, sexually immoral, a thief, false witness, and slander. Verse 3. But yet you still ask. Remember, this is the church. This is talking to the church. This is not out to the public. This is God's people. This is you and me. You ask and you do not receive. Because you ask wrongly to spend it 
on your passions. You ever just ask for something because it's really what your flesh wanted? You know, it's sort of like, I, I sort of, it's this correlation of, God, I really want this thing. I really want this circumstance. And we don't get, but sometimes I believe it's because our desire is to do things that we want, not so much kingdom focused. When we get out of alignment, it's like a car. I'll go with this thing of the car. It's like the wheels get out of alignment, they begin to wobble, and they don't run correctly, and your life begins to fall apart. And if you let it go long enough, your tires will end up get, uh, will get, um, you get blown out, and you'll end up on the side of the road. Now, brace yourself, because James gets more encouraging. You adulterous people. This is like uh, Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. I could have preached this. I could scream this. Like, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Now, this doesn't mean, hey, I can't be nice to the people in this world. There's some Christians, I think, that believe that. But this is talking about the passions, the fleshly passions. Therefore, whoever wishes to be friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So I'm going to ask you, how does the idea of being enemy with God sit with you? I mean, let's be frank, we gave up of a couple hours to get ready for church and to come into church and to worship God and to, you know, to, to pray and to be encouraged with one another. So we believe, we're saying sort of by our actions, I'm not saying everyone here, but that we believe in God. And so if we believe in God, then he says these things, it should make us a little worried when it says that we are being accused of being adulterous. By seeking friendship with the world, they're committing spiritual adultery. We commit spiritual adultery when we follow after our own selfish passions and desires and we seek after them and not kingdom things. And we wonder why the tires begin to wobble or while the engine locks up. It's because you cannot keep driving that car. Isaiah 54 speaks of this spiritual adultery. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. God calls you and me, we're like, we're like his bride. And he keeps referring to us, and if you think of, if you look in the Old Testament, you'll talk about in the book of Hosea, he's lamenting about his wife leaving him and being adulterous and doing all these things, and, and yet he stays with her, just like God stays with us. But James refers, the church is acting spiritually adulterous. Verse five, it says, or you just suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Let that sink. If we are going to have the be brides of Christ, 
we're going to be taken up someday and we're going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb and we're going to have no sin anymore and we're going to just dwell with God and worship him forever and, and, and do something. I really believe we're going to do something. I don't think it's all going to be a kumbaya moment. It's not going to be a passion conference for eternity. I think we're going to be doing something. But we say we believe that, but listen to what James warns. If you're spiritual adulterous, don't you think that God is jealous over the spirit that he has implanted in you? Do you think he wants his spirit to go into places that they shouldn't go? Do you think, so it's like, imagine if, uh, Lord, I've been married for 27 years, and imagine if you see me on a regular basis hanging out with other women and going out to clubs and just going, hey, what's up, you know, and just fraternizing with the crowd. Would you all think that's cool? I'm glad you answered that. That's a good start, right? No, uh, you wouldn't think it was cool, and there were some of you in here that would take me out. And I'm not talking about on a date. <laughs> I get taken out. But we go, no, I don't want that. You know, would you, what do you think about the, the you know, um, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but uh, an older gentleman just being super flirtatious with the young girls around him. I'm talking a, a, 18 or above. I'm not getting that total weirdness. But, you know, just sort of like, it's, it's not fitting of the age, is it? It's like, it's not fitting of, of a Christian. It's just like, just being flirtatious and doing all this stuff. It's creepy, right? And I see some creepy looks on your face like, oh. You know, it, there are some creepy things going on in this world. But how much more creepy is it for a child of God to let adulterous passions dwell up from within, to let anger fester, to let disunity increase, to let the tongue devastate, to go and take the Holy Spirit to internet pornography, to go and take the Holy Spirit to strip clubs, to go and take the Holy Spirit to Netflix, to go and take the Holy Spirit to certain movies, to go and take the Holy Spirit to things that you shouldn't be taking the Holy Spirit to. He says, God is a jealous God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose? Look at that verse. Because the problem's inside. The problem's inside. And again, preventive maintenance doesn't apply to anyone here but it's on the inside. He yearns jealously. Verse six, but this is the good news. He gives more grace. So he sets this up, right? It's like God is a jealous God. He is this, you're adulterer, but he gives grace. Therefore, God says he opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Augustine says God always gives what he demands. Hear that. Augustine said, God always gives what he demands. So when he demands humility, as we humble ourselves, he will give us humbleness. As we lean on him for power to ask forgiveness, he will grant us a spirit of 
forgiveness. As we seek to be compassionate towards people who might not deserve it, God will grant us compassion in our spirit. He will give us fruit of the spirit as we dwell with him. He is a God of grace, and he gives more grace, and he gives more grace, and he gives more grace. There is no lost sheep in this room. There is no sheep that is left out apart from the shepherd. There's hope. But what do you do? So, like, you leave it there. It's like, yeah, I'll take more grace. I'll take it. Verse 7. Okay, then. So what are you going to do? Submit. Wives, how do you like that word in other contexts? Ladies, do you like that word? Uh, if you know it in the biblical sense, you're cool with it, but in the angry male sense, you're not cool with it, right? But here it's talking broadly. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So who does this make you think of? My first thought went to Peter. Remember Peter's like questioning Jesus, telling him stuff, and Jesus turns around and says what? Get thee. Yeah, you all quiet on the Satan part. Get thee behind me. So Peter, a disciple of Jesus Christ, was following after his own passions and lust somehow. They were in there working. He thought that he had something to say to Jesus. He thought that he was just a little more wise or whatever. And Jesus looks at him and checks him like hockey style and says, get thee behind me, Satan. This means that if you are following not after the passions of God, that you're following after the passions of the flesh and you're being led around by the hand by Satan himself. You're just falling in his ways. I don't need preventative maintenance. I don't need to read my Bible. I'm a special one. I'm not like these other people. I have all the knowledge in my head. I don't even need to read it. I don't need to pray because God hears my thoughts. I talk to God sometimes. I say GD every once in a while. I, I talk to God. But is it intimate? Is it meaningful? Or are you in bed with someone else, spiritually speaking? Are the words of affection genuine, without malice, without expectation, other than his presence? The worship team said that, right? And we sang it. Your presence is all I need. And without it, without it, there's no meaning. Did you think about what you're singing? I had to ask myself. I'm sort of that kind of thinker. I'm that, that weird, like I start reading stuff and I start thinking, man, mm, I don't know. Do I really feel that with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind? But James' answer is submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It is an active training. So if you're going to do preventive maintenance, sometimes you got to flush out the system, right? Sometimes you got to pull the drain plug, let all the bad out, 
cap it again, don't take a jiffy loop, pour it back in and, and let it and start fresh over and record and start over again. And it says, if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. Verse eight. So you saw the first one is submit, then draw, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Are you hearing these actions? Submit, draw near, and cleanse your hands. Another nice word, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. I don't know if... If I am in our present culture, I'm going to get offended by that. It's supposed to be a little funny. I'm going to get offended. You know how easily we're offended these days? If someone doesn't like my shoes, I'm offended. If someone doesn't like this, they're offended. They're offended. This offended. James is offensive here. He says that I am double-minded, that I need to purify myself because something's not right. Verse 10 Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Humble yourselves. Sometimes that is as simple as confessing all the things that are inside that you know God already knows already to him. If you haven't done it in a while, it's an oil change. God I have been, my passions have been after the things of the world. God, I haven't been spending time with you because I felt I, pridefully that I can do it myself. God, I haven't been praying because deep down I know that there's something between you and me and I don't want to deal with it. You ever felt that one? So we, re, we, we draw away. God, this is how I feel. I have drawn away because I know that that's there. I know there's a sin of Achan in my heart. There's something there that you want, and I don't want to give it away, and so we draw away. But it says, humble yourselves before God, and he will exalt you. Then verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and the judges and judges the law, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. So he warns them. He's telling all this stuff. He, he condemns them, tells them, gives them the prescription, and then brings them back to, you know, I know you guys are still talking. But if we speak evil, if we, we bring someone down, then God we're calling ourselves the judge and not God. And then verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and there's only one judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? To submit to God means that we must place ourselves under his lordship and therefore commit to obey him in all things. That is what sanctification entails. That is what pursuing holiness entails. 
It is letting go of the things we were pursuing before Christ and pressing into the things of Christ. But he's warning the church here, and he's saying if you're continually judging one another, if you're continually bickering with one another, the passion is within here. It is within our lust for things. It is within our adulterous nature. But God is a God who provides. Grace abounds from him.